everyone, it's Amber Love from AmberUnmatched.com and today I have the pleasure of talking with Mr. Andy Parks, who's most notable for his work at Dynamite Entertainment, working on some comics that I absolutely love and cherish. So Andy, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, Alright, so obviously the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet books have been doing incredibly well over at Dynamite. I hope so. So, so I think that's great. Um, now, this is. Do you think that this is odd in the world of superheroes that these great pulp characters are doing so well? Not. I. Don't, I think these two characters are so iconic. They're such nat- natural templates that no, it doesn't surprise me. Um, okay. And you know they're created by the same guy, and they share. You know theoretically they're they're related. The two characters are related, and they share a lot of elements in the in the origin stories. I was going to ask you that. That was in, in like one of my uh, first questions. Was uh, you know, I, in case people haven't started your new volume yet, because the Lone Ranger that's out right now is only at like issue two. Uh, three came out last week. Three, okay. Yeah. So in case, so it's very easy at this point for people to catch up. Absolutely. So, it, um, so is your Lone Ranger then your, still John Reed? It is, yeah. Okay. It's it's really the same world and the same characters that Brett Matthews kind of reinvented when he did Lone Ranger Dynamite. Okay. Just carrying on, kind of picking up several months after his series ended and running with it in my own way. Okay. So um, I was going to ask if it picked up where it left off. Do you think that it's necessary? Anybody needs to go back and revisit that? or do No, you think absolutely that not. Okay. We did. We didn't go back and do the whole origin, but in our first issue, there's a little flashback scene that gives you enough background to roll with. And then our thing is freestanding. It's just Lone Ranger and Tonto out in the West trying to help people. So you, you don't need any background at all. Okay. And he's still related to Britt Reed then? Yeah. He, I've never really looked into that a lot, and I couldn't tell you exactly what the relationship is, but I know that... Like the grandfather, great-grandfather or something? I think great grandfather maybe yeah but i just think it, it's a, such an interesting correlation there that people might not be familiar with and as far as their comic history goes right i've had a couple people ask me if i'm going to do anything with that and i'm not as far as i know but i think dynamite maybe they, they ran something by me at some point to see if i had any issues with it mm-hmm. so i think they may be working on a series about that connection i do think that would be interesting because i know when they uh took the Green Hornet and the Cato characters, they've had, first of all, like a dozen titles at this mm. point from different different reimaginings of them. And at one point, one of the things that I really loved, I think it was the Parallel Lives one, where, you know, we got to see Cato as an individual and we got to see the Green Hornet as an individual and what their lives were like growing up and then eventually as they intersect. Um, so it would almost be really awesome to see a sort of side-by-side look at the Green Hornet developing, you know, and the impact that it had from the Lone Ranger history. Yeah, right. Um, Especially... Well, I I think, you know, I just the whole vigilante concept, I think, is, you know, carries through. Right. And the new Green Hornet, the guy I'm writing, you know, Britt Reed Jr., his origin is based more on the tragic death of his father much like Lone Rangers was. Right. Is there going to be any romance in your arc? In Lone Ranger? Yeah. I, 
can't no. say. The, the short answer is no. The short answer is no. But I've, I've flirted with it and then ruled it out in my first arc. In the third arc, we may get back to that. The, the mm-hmm. first arc is kind of is called Hard Country, and it's about Lone Ranger kind of confronting... It's his ideals confronting what a harsh, unforgiving place the Old West was. Right. The second arc is about Lone Ranger... Or, uh, sorry, Tonto's past, and deals with the kind of untold story of how he came to be this lone Indian brave roaming around the country when he discovered Lone Ranger's body and brought it back to health and all that. The third arc is going to put them on the road again, and there may be some romance in that. I would really like to do it. It's just hard, with that kind of roaming character, it's hard to balance how do you mix any kind of meaningful relationship in with somebody who... I'm sorry, that's terribly rude. I'm going to get this phone out of, out of this room. Oh, all right. You Maybe I can that. mute it. There, I muted it. Sorry about that. That's okay. Um, because well, Ranger, the- I think to tell the kind of stories I want to tell with him, he needs to be mobile. He needs to run into different parts and different people in the Old West. So it's hard to tie him down to any kind of relationship that might be meaningful. Well, that's what I was going to also ask is why are they wandering? Why are they not, you know, in a specific city? Like, you know, when we have... You know, we have Batman in Gotham City, and we've got, you know, people in in their very specific cities. Right. So why does the Lone Ranger and Tonto, why do they wander? That's an interesting point. It's kind of a given in the in the basic concept that he kind of roams from town to town looking for wrongs to right. But mm-hmm. I guess theoretically they could settle down for a while. I do think there's something, especially in Tonto's nature, that would make settling down difficult for him. Um, and you'll see some of that in our second arc. They have very different feelings about civilizations and living in towns and so on. Right, I noticed Ranger that. I'd accept that to some extent, but I don't think Tonto can. Ton- yeah, Tonto doesn't want to, you know, get fat and lazy. Right. Um, but it was it was very beautiful and somewhat surprising at the end of the previous volume that it was the the love interest was not going to be for, you know, who we consider the main character, the Lone yeah, Ranger, right. was actually for Tonto. Right. Um, and I thought that was a lovely twist, and oh my gosh, it was just a beautiful moment. Right, so, I agree. And we want to get back and revisit those characters at some point, mm-hmm. but it was kind of a conscious decision to stay away from there for a year or so. Okay. Now the format that you're using is, like, you have this... Uh, detailed narrative and it's just like you know this flowing voice from panel to panel with the captions and the you know the sort of parchment style and everything is that something that that you consciously decided because you wanted to keep a pulp you know did it feel like a pulp rhythm to you or was it something that you just decided um on your own that you thought was interesting it's kind of it's kind of my favorite trick and I, i i use it a lot i used it in my uh Capote in Kansas graphic novel. I used it in Union Station. And it, it's really a, a literary trick because omniscient author voices are not popular in comics right now. It's just not the style. Right. Um, and that's kind of what I'd like to do. I kind of find, I have to find other ways to introduce narrative voices because I don't really like to do the first person character narration. And it, I especially don't think that'd be appropriate with Lone Ranger or Tonto. So I got to find other ways to kind of introduce a narrative flow, and it gives me a chance to contrast what's going on with the narrative with what's going on in the 
lives of the picture, uh, lives of the characters, or the pictures on the page. And I think that contrast is really interesting. I, I thought maybe in Lone Ranger number one, I overdid it a little bit. There's a newspaper article, and there's a quote from John Ford, and there's a lot of stuff. Going on. Um, but in in most issues, there will be some kind of counterbalance like that, some narrative that fits or doesn't quite fit the story, kind of laid over to make the stuff a little richer. Okay. I, I like the, um, you know, the sort of, well, first of all, I like the lettering, but I did think that it was a little bit hard to read. And that could just be my aging eyes at this yeah. point, because I, every comic I pick up at this point, I'm like, you know, and that's why digital is just not working for me. Cause it's like, oh. I, just have to, I have to microscopically zoom into things. Right. I'm like, Oh, these, you know, these, when people go to the old English calligraphy fonts, I want to right. bring their necks. Right. But the handwriting font's not so bad. Good. Um, yeah, um, Simon is really good, and if I ask him for... Uh, we just had a really challenging thing. There's a character coming up who cannot speak, and so she carries a little blackboard and has to write on her blackboard short messages for me. Oh. And that's a tricky little thing. You want it to look kind of handwritten and natural, but you also want it to be legible, so it's tricky. And Simon's really good at balancing that stuff. Okay. Um. You know, this just totally came off of the top of my head. Um, last year seemed to be the year where we talked about girls versus boys, and it was getting, like, to the point of just, you know, could we be done with it already? Right. And, I mean, when you think about the Lone Ranger and the Green Hornet, they sound like boys comics, and they were, like, my two favorite comics. <laughs> mm, good. Um you know, it's like I had those two, and then I had Love and Capes. I'm like, okay, oh, cool. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, what's going on? Um, but do you consider, um, like, who the reader is when you're when you're writing? No, I don't think about it too much. Um, I did think about it more when I was writing the Cato book, um, because I was writing this solo, twenty year old girl, her right. adventures. But I still didn't externalize it very much. I just kind of thought. I wrote how my daughter and I interact. She's nowhere near that age, but she's 13. She's old enough to start to have a little bit of that pushback scenario. Mm-hmm. So I still just internalize it, and I write what I think is interesting about that dynamic, and I just have to hope people dig it. I, I don't really second-guess much who's going to read it or what they'll think. I try to write... You know, I'm so hard on myself. I, think <laughs> I write something I think doesn't horribly suck that enough other people will probably think the same. That's good. You know, that's good to have confidence. I mean, after how many years have you been doing this? You know? Full, yeah. Well, I've been making a living in comics for a long time. Only full-time writing for, I don't know, two, three years now. But writing, you know, I wrote my first graphic novel, Union Station, probably close to a decade ago now. Yeah. So, I mean, the confidence is there. and Well, yeah. it is. But, again, I I usually don't like it when, I leaves, when it leaves my computer. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can go back maybe a month later and go, yeah, I think it's okay. It's probably good enough. And I, I figure I'm going to be as harsh as anybody. So if I think it's good enough, hopefully other people will be good. That's true. I think you're safe. <laughs> My wife is very patient with me. I'll go out to the... This used to happen more often. I've gotten a little more confident. But I remember when writing Capote... I'd come up from my studio, which used to be in the basement, up to the kitchen and say, well, that's too bad. I blew it, and it could have been a good graphic novel, but I blew it, and people are probably going to laugh at me. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> She'd go, you know, 
she'd go, well, give it a little time. It's probably okay. <laughs> yeah, you just had to brood. Right. All creative types have to brood a little. Um, so I know that um, I had the, the pleasure of getting through most of your, your commentary last night that went up on Bleeding Cool. Oh, nice. Which I thought was a, a really great thing to do. And, cool. It was uh, fun to do. Well, that's good. Did you plan on that from the beginning, or did you have to go back and, and rethink all the pages? No, I went through Nick at Dynamite. Um, they had done that with some other book of theirs. Okay. And so he asked me if I'd be interested, and I said, yeah, I could tackle a few issues in Lone Ranger. He said, well, do three. So it took a little time, but it, it's kind of an interesting process. I hope, you know, I tried to balance the kind of superficial, oh, isn't this art pretty here, mm-hmm. with some real thematic stuff that tried, I hope, gave you some insight on what I was trying to accomplish. It did. Well, the piece that struck out to me the most was where you had to defend what you did as far as the history of Oklahoma. Yeah, right. Um, and I, I was, I've was i been listening to um, the podcast Writing Excuses, uh-huh. and I, they just did a show about historical fiction. And, you know, this woman woman was describing how, you know, when she had the president go into this building, the building didn't suit her needs for her story, so... The way to resolve it, and she she felt that she couldn't say the president went into another building because people would be on her back about that. Right. So instead, she just burned the building down. <laughs> <laughs> so she's like, I'm getting around this this you know potential backlash of his history fans. So you know you you know, and I don't think naming something the Oklahoma Territory is a big deal because it's a, an expanse of land. It is a territory, right. Right. and and that's what it was. Um, I've I've been dealing with that kind of balancing act for a long time. My first graphic novel, Union Station, was historical fiction, and a lot of real characters who I had to use in my story. And at some point, I was unfair to one of them, a guy named Vince Miller, who was a a killer who was almost certainly part of the Union Station massacre. He's the only one everybody agrees was there. And I wasn't entirely fair to him and how he died. And I wrote footnotes in the back of that book and kind of said, here's where I was accurate, here's where I wasn't. And I started to apologize to Vince Miller. (laughs) And then I said, you know what? He was a cold-blooded killer, so fuck him. Right, yeah. He can take what I give him. (laughs) I don't think he's going to come after you. (laughs) Yeah. But you still, you know, you feel some responsibility, especially more so with people than I ever would about the stupid name of Oklahoma in 1870. But when it's people, and I really felt this with Nancy Clutter when I wrote my Truman Capote book, I was writing, I hate to call her ghost, but the spirit or whatever of this poor innocent girl who was murdered and didn't do anything wrong and didn't deserve to be treated disrespectfully by me, certainly. So I tried to write her very responsibly and very sensitively and just um, allow her to be there, but it's still in the back of my mind the whole time, God, I hope one of her you know, nieces or nephews doesn't pick this up someday and think it's inappropriate. Right. Well, you n- you never know. Or they might they might drop you a- an email and say thanks. Yeah, that's what I w- that's why I was hoping. I and the reason I put her in that book is that if you don't, and if you've seen the Philip Seymour Hoffman Capote movie, it suffers from this. The whole movie is about Truman mm-hmm. and the killers, and the people who died are left out of it. And I just didn't feel comfortable with that. I wanted to represent them somehow. Mm-hmm. And that was the, is that the people that died for like only $20? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. there's a great scene in, in Truman's book where they're interrogating Perry, uh, one of the killers, and he describes uh, a moment after he killed Nancy when he was crawling around under her bed trying to reach a silver dollar that he dropped. And he kind of had an out-of-body experience where he looked down at himself scrambling after this kid's dollar and thought, oh, God, what have I become? Become, mm-hmm. Yeah, and then they asked him, so how much did you get from the thing altogether? And he said, oh, cash and radio, it's about 20 bucks. And you go, oh, my God. It's really a tragic moment. Mm-hmm. And that's, I mean, you know, pulling this back to, like, the Lone Ranger, that, that happens in... What you what just happened? I mean, not to spoil it too much, right, but right. you know, this there's this poor tragedy, and it was like what eight dollars or something. Exactly. Yeah, and I've seen you know a lot of my Lone Ranger stuff is based on my experience visiting my grandparents who lived out in kind of middle Kansas, and I know old men out there who were still bitter about how somebody screwed them out of thirty bucks in 1958. Yeah, they hang on to that, huh? Yeah, and some of those things get really ingrained, and it, it, you know, it's easy to say it's not about the money anymore, but there's an instigating incident that some people just can't let go of that can lead to really tragic stuff. And again, in that in that Lone Ranger number one, they didn't really intend to kill anybody. It's just kind of a stupid, careless accident that resulted in a tragedy. Mm Hmm. How do you think? What side would you be on back in if you were back in the old west? Oh, I'd definitely be. Well, I identified with the uh, the farmer a lot. I'd be a good I'd be a good dude trying to make make my way. But I'd be worried about if I'd be a strong enough person or not. I think it took a really. A real oh yeah, I don't tough, think I'd make it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it took a real toughness to survive in that, and a real a real willingness not to be a victim, you know? Yeah. My, my power went out for six days on Halloween because of the, the freak blizzard, and I did not fare well. <laughs> but do you, do you have any pets or any, anybody that really relies on you there? Yeah. Yeah, luckily I have a cat, and right. she's still alive. So. Well, that would do it for me. If I had people who needed me, I would definitely be willing to step up for them. I think. Yeah. I think that's what would save me. But we know that there really were no women in the Old West except for the wenches, right? right. I mean, if you watch if you watch Western movies, right. there were no, there are no women except except for the whores. And I, I that's probably part why this female character that's coming up in Lone Ranger happened was um, it was getting to be a pretty macho vibe three or four issues in, and I thought I want to represent somebody. And it's true that this lady I represent is kind of a victim, but she's also a victim who takes things into her own hands a little bit. Yeah, I think, well, I can't remember what it was, but I, when I was living in Pittsburgh, they had this great old historic theater that somebody had renovated, and I think it was um, Once Upon a Time in the West, maybe? Mm-hmm. The main character actually was a, a female, mm-hmm. but it was sort of like one of these arranged, bought marriage situations, oh, right. you know, but she ended up becoming very wealthy, and, right. you know, that changes things talking about a wealthy woman well then you know you can you can write in a woman like that right, right. i need to i need to i definitely need to have uh lone ranger bump into some more strong female characters that's coming up that'll be that'd be great and you get to know mm, i shouldn't say too much you get to know um females from tonto's past in the second arc okay okay even if it's 
flashback or, or whatnot, we will take it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the second arc is a lot of flashback. It's mainly kind of, I hate to call it an origin story, but yeah, it's basically Tonto's origin story told over a long series of flashbacks. Okay. Now, your American history research is pretty thorough, as you know, you discussed over at Bleeding Cool. Yeah. Um, how far back does your research actually go with the Lone Ranger and Tonto? I mean, what did you do to prepare for this? I didn't, it's not like I dove into a lot before I started writing. I just, um, as the story propels itself along, I'm not willing to let myself be uninformed when they get to a certain spot or they encounter a certain group of people. So if I decide they happen to be on the western side of Kansas right now and they need to go in search of Indians, Native Americans, I, I go back and forth on that. Yeah, um, I do too. Which way would they go and who are they going to encounter? Well, I discovered that there were Ute Indians in... Uh, eastern Colorado so I do some research on the Ute Indian tribes and what they were going through at that time period and just kind of make sure that I'm not winging it too much when I have a chance to I think make the story richer by providing a little background that's historical Okay Are you making you know any big sweeping changes with the characters that I mean in Green Hornet Let's face it; it was really shocking. It was we're talking a new generation. We're talking Cato being a girl. Right. So you know, do we have any big changes with the Lone Ranger and Tonto? No, not really. I think, I mean, we're not talking like broke back Oklahoma. No. <laughs> and Dynamite, I think, was very happy with the Brett Matthews series. It was they fabulous. Want, they want that template maintained. It's just my job, like what we're doing with Tonto now. It's my job to maybe go back and fill in the gaps here and there. And I think they, the characters have changed subtly to re- reflect my personality more. Um, I think they're a little... I think maybe I've made Lone Ranger's values a little more black and white um, and made him a little more stand-up, old-school, like Clayton Moore TV show, mm-hmm. maybe than what Brett Matthews was writing. Because I kind of wanted to slam those values into that real Old West setting. and I think I think that's interesting. Now, my knowledge only goes back as far as the, this Brett Matthews run that mm-hmm. you were talking about. So has he always been a no-kill kind of hero? Yeah, right. As okay. far as I know. Definitely. I mean, my experience was getting up Saturday morning before my okay. and wandering out to the TV and finding Lone Ranger reruns. And that character was definitely, yeah, very... Very noble and, you know, drink milk at the bar kind of guy. <laughs> um, so how long are are the story arcs that you're planning? Because when I read through one and two, they seemed like they could be perfectly fine as one-shots. Yeah, there were... I wanted to start, number one, definitely with a standalone so that somebody could pick it up and just go, oh, look at that, it's all self-contained, I got a story, and this is not... Because I think that's a satisfying way to read. If I had my way, really, we'd move... The whole American comic book industry would move to more of a European model where you put out big albums. Because we want more adults to read comics, and yet we make it really frustrating for them. They have to go find a comic book store every month and read this serialized thing. I think they'd be much more willing to try it if they could just go in and pay 15 bucks and be done with it. I agree. Get a big graphic novel and be done with it. 
Um, that said, we start out with a couple standalone issues, and then there's a three-issue arc, and then there's one issue after that that's standalone, but also tied into those three issues. But the pr- the thinking was that those whole six issues fit into a larger theme called Hard Country, which is about what a tough landscape this is and how it's really hard to make a difference, but still one man with noble intentions can make a difference in people's lives. Um, and I want to do more of that, where there's kind of standalone stories, but they fit together as a whole in the end. And that's partially done for packaging. They, Dynamite would like to have five, six, seven issues to put out in a trade. It's sure. all set yeah. done. And I think six is a nice nice number, so I'm, I'm trying to do whether the stories are all really serialized or not, I'm trying to do six-issue arcs that work in that format. Yeah, I think that's... Uh, I, I think people are accustomed to it. I think they're they're comfortable with it. Um, the only thing, you know, where people have been discussing that it's almost not necessary anymore is the digital format. Mm-hmm. Um, people have been saying that, you know, why are we limiting our stories to, you know, exactly 22 pages or, you know, whatever it is. Right. Um, you know, so uh, that's still something that's in progress and evolving. I don't right. know. And I agree um, with that. I think the digital stuff is really exciting. I really like reading comics on my iPad. But we, I still pay my bills based on that print economic model. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm hopeful that things will move that way and that creators will have a more direct path direct to readers but there's that's not the economic reality right now okay yeah I, th- I have to agree you know it's hopefully we're not gonna you know all go bankrupt in the process right right um all right so now it's the year 2012 and there's a new lone ranger movie coming out yeah you know big theatrical release Nobody even cares who's playing the Lone Ranger because Tonto is being played by Johnny Depp. <laughs> right. So have you seen the image? I did. Released? I did. Okay. What are your thoughts? Can you can you honestly say what your thoughts are? I just thought, I, I said this on Twitter, well, those aren't the people I'm writing. Yeah. And I really, I want to continue making the best stories I can about the Lone Ranger that wears a blue shirt and doesn't wear a badge. I was disturbed by the badge. I was as well. Um, and... A Tonto who I think looks like a real Native American. Now, it could be, you know, in that publicity photo, there may be a very specific story reason for Tonto to be dressed up like he's on the warpath at that right. particular moment. So I'm trying not to judge that too harshly. But that right. just, that wasn't the guy I think I'm writing. And yeah. It, you know, we don't know what scene that's from. Right. Yeah. I mean, Dynamite invests, what, several thousand dollars in creative talent and overhead whatever, it could be substantial, several thousand, in making a Lone Ranger comic. Somebody in Hollywood is laying down some ridiculous amount, 200 million or whatever it may be. Yeah. Something big. Something so, big to get Johnny Depp on there. Yeah. And so Helena Bottom Carter, of course. If they feel they need to make some different creative choices to justify that expense and make it marketable, I completely understand that. I just hope there'll still be a marketplace for what I think is the more traditional characters that I'm writing. Are you bothered at all that they didn't find an actual Native American actor? It did occur to me, um, and it, actually I was reading on the Bendis board, people were debating that, and people were defending Depp because he's 116th, whatever he may be, I don't know. 
I guess not. I mean, that's again, that's the reality of Hollywood because you got to have somebody that delivers ticket sales to get the movie made. I, I did mention on Twitter, it always bothered even as a kid when I watched westerns. I knew that 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 Indian villain wasn't an Indian dude. I was like, well, that guy's wearing paint on it. The backup people are Native Americans. Well, what's with this star who? I mean, it did, even when I was ten years old, that struck me as kind of odd. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, to a certain degree, I think you can get away with with it. I think I think you have to be passable, and he kind of is. I mean, he's got the you know the dark features. He does. But it, you know, but you know, at the same point, if I go back, if I look at something like I don't know, like Apocalypto or something, where you know these truly native people are cast, right? It's it's like you can't tell me that there isn't one out there that can act. <laughs> right, and really, if I had my way, I might make that Lone Ranger movie as a seventy million dollar movie mm-hmm. with a Native American actor, and not make that compromise of well, we're going to spend two hundred million, so we got to have Johnny Depp because he brings in this many dollars. But they made the decision to go big because it's uh, what's his name, Gore Verbinski or whatever. It's the pirate director guy. Yeah, he wants so. to make it a big grand thing, and that means spending a certain amount of money. And it means you got to get a star. So, so we'll be seeing Lone Ranger and Tonto theme park rides. Yeah, I imagine. You know what? The, I just cross my fingers in hopes that this means that I can keep writing a Lone Ranger comic for a long time. But now, since uh, which is great. I mean, but it brings up the whole uh, legal discussion about it's a public domain character, correct? I don't believe so. No? No, I think, no. There's you a license. license? Yeah. Okay, because um, would there be an the official movie adaptation comic, just like, right. you know, every everything else, like Iron Man is, you know, Iron Man's been a, a fantastic comic book, but um, they have still had to do an official movie comic book. Right. I haven't talked to Nick at Dynamite about this, but my... My assumption and my hope would be that as long as our book is performing okay, that we would be left alone to make our Lone Ranger comic, and that at the same time they'd have a movie thing that they could sell that for people who wanted that. Yeah, separate. So. That's kind of that's what they did with Green Hornet. I mean, I was right. read Green Hornet. I think by the time the movie came out, close to it. Yeah, it felt a little. It, it felt confusing as a consumer. Really. Yeah, that there were so many Green Hornet books. Yeah. And uh, luckily, I've read as many as possible, and, you know, there were things that I liked and things that I didn't like. Right. It was, it was I mean, when I started writing Kato, they said, so Kato's living in Japan with her dad, and blah, blah, blah. And my first pitch had Kato Sr. as this 80-year-old man or whatever. And they said, no, 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 this is the Kevin Smith universe. He's different. It, it happened in the 80s and not the... 60s. Oh, so I had to readjust. But yeah, they were they were definitely juggling two different, complete universes of those characters. Okay. Well, let's talk about some of your your other work or just writing in general. Um, I ha- I do have a question from from the public from the listeners here. Michael from you know one of my friends from uh, Comic Fusion wants to know. Well, first of all, he's a huge fan of your Green Arrow run with oh, Mel cool. Custer, and yeah. he wants to know what it's like to work on a character for so long. It's really complicated. It's, it's, 
cool. I mean, it was still a nice dream to work together in a book that actually people would see. Because for the longest time, we worked together on our Korean our own stuff, but DC seemed to have this thing like we cannot work together. <laughs> and we were just about to give up. I, and, and then Kevin Smith came along, and Bob Shrek came along, our editor. God bless him, and said, we want Phil and Andy to do this book. And we got to, for about four years, be a team. And some people even started to say ridiculous things like, you guys are the definitive Green Arrow, which is... I'm a big Neil Adams fan, and for me, Neil Adams is a Green Arrow. So that's... <laughs> but still really cool to hear. And it's cool to get so identified with somebody. Um, on the other hand, I don't know if you're aware that Green Arrow has this freaking hat that he wears all the time. Yeah. Oh, my little, God. If you're trying to run that thing at different angles, it's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> and you run out of ways to show the bow and the, sh- you know, and the, the the beard gets to be a pain in the ass. You're like, well, he's looking down and a three quarter shot. What's the beard doing in that? And so, there are certain things that do kind of wear on you as time goes by as well. I think four years was a, it was enough where we feel like we really did a good run. We didn't walk away. We stuck it out. But four years was probably enough. Have Have you? Um, had any time to explore the DC's new 52 universe? I I have to admit I'm probably a couple months behind on it. I, I really enjoyed a few of them, um, but I have not by any stretch read all of them. I've been reading Batman. I've read Action up to number five, I think. I like that a lot. And, and Swamp Thing and Animal Man. Those are the ones I've really been following, and I enjoy all those. Okay. Any other... Like, what other stuff do you enjoy? It's pretty. It, it's a bad answer. Um, it's a bad answer. <laughs> I'm one of those obnoxious comic creators who doesn't read a lot of comics. No, most of them tell me that they don't have time. Yeah, it's. I'm kind of torn. You know, writers say the best way you got to do two things to be a great writer: you got to read a lot and write a lot. Yeah. And I've always been kind of torn about the reading part, especially comics. I don't want to become. I don't want to read all the popular comics and try to somehow synthesize all that into a style that becomes me. I want to maintain my voice and my personality um, and at the same time remain somewhat marketable. Like I'm saying, you know, omniscient narrative voices narrating the whole stories are not very stylistic. They're not very popular right now stylistically. So I try to be mindful of that. But on the other hand, I want to maintain what little gift I have that's just me so I think there's some value in not reading too much stuff, but there are certain guys I like. I try to read most things Brew Baker does. Jason Aaron's a good buddy of mine, and I think he's about the best, you know, mm-hmm. popular writer right now. I love his stuff, so I try to read most of his stuff. And that's about it. A few little things here and there, but that's about it. And then I tr- I'm always behind on my on my um, reading outside of comics. Right now, yeah. I have a research book I'm supposed to be reading for a project coming up. I've got um, my friend Alex Grecian turned me on to Graham Greene, so it's like two Graham Greene books I'm trying to read. And I'm, I, there's always a stack next to my bed of stuff that I'm behind on. That's how I feel, too. I've got, like, two shelves filled with graphic novels and, you know, and novels. And each nightstand has its own pile <laughs> yeah. of more books. It, it's, it is, like, um, never-ending. And then, of course, you see stuff on sale, and you can't possibly pass that up. Absolutely. And I'm a slow reader, too. Actually, my friend Alex Grecian has just sold this book that will be out in May called The The Yard, which is a big deal. He's a big, best-selling author. He wrote this book about Scotland Yard. 
And we were just talking about this the other day about how we're always behind on reading and we feel like it's a shame that we read so slowly, but I don't want to skim over the words. I really want to soak up every word and every phrase and see how the author constructed things. I don't want to read twice as fast and just rip through the books and just get the plot and miss out on the little details, you know? Yeah, I feel like, I don't know, maybe that happens. These people that claim they read these um, giant sagas like Harry Potter, they can read, you know, a thousand and something pages. And, you know, they have to stay up all night when the book came out. Right, the whole thing, right. And they take the day off work and they read the whole thing. I'm like, how do you read that many pages in one day? Right. I, I'm flabbergasted. I can get through a 200-page book if I do nothing else. But right. no, that's just absurd to me. I have a friend who's really well-read. She's in book clubs and all, and she's always bragging about how much she's read. And she's admitted to me that she's not soaking up every word. She's learned this method of kind of ripping through stuff and gathering the big stuff and moving on. And my friend Alex said, you should quote, uh, there's some line from a movie where somebody says that to a, a writer, and he says, that's terrible. Would you listen to music at double speed if it went through faster just because you could? Yeah, yeah, that's true. If you, if you only heard every fifth note. Yeah, right. I I had a friend read... Um, I went to visit his class. I was talking to his uh, honors English class of junior high kids. And I brought him a copy of Capone in Kansas. In the 45 minutes I was talking to his class, he read my book. <laughs> and I was like, well, I spent like a year on that. I, should, <laughs> you know, I understand you went through the pages and you read all the words, but I wish you'd kind of lingered on some of the images a little longer you know what can you do it was a little painful <laughs> what's um the absolute worst thing that you've ever done to a character worst is in like emotionally painful yes yeah well there are two and i just wrote one of them um one was during writing to capone and kansas in the first scene we kill nancy clutter and it was really hard to write that panel where the gun goes off and she's going to be gone and the other one I just wrote this last week and I stalled on this script for several days because it, there's something tragic that happens in Tonto's past and I still, I knew I liked my outline a lot that described what has to happen and I think it makes perfect sense I just didn't want to write it because it, mm -hmm. it's not pleasant and my, my editor said the same thing I said how, how was it he said, well, it was a really hard read because of what you did there, but it was good. Um, so, yeah, sometimes you just have to do horrible stuff to your characters and, and move on. But it's good that it takes a toll. I'd hate to be so callous about it that I go, oh, I'm just going to torture these people and who gives a shit. Okay. But it's not just, it's not just um, you know, some sort of action-packed, um, you know, movie where, you know, silly, gross torturous things are happening. I mean, right. I hope when, not. when it happens, you want it to, to be felt. Right. And I, I've written this graphic novel that's not out yet. I don't know if it was... There was some movie news that came out about it last week where it came out that Dwayne Johnson is going to maybe be in the movie version of it called Ciudad, which is about a kidnapping in South America. And it's got some horrible stuff in it um, and some really nasty violence. Um, but I hope that when you read that violence, it's not just, like, shocking. I hope that you're disturbed because you cared about the character that I built before I did that. Okay. So you just have to push your way through it when you when you get to those parts. 
Yeah, and right. I have to admit, there's one horrific moment of violence in Theodad that I was actually kind of looking forward to. <laughs> there's a there's an obscure Elliot Gould movie from the '70s. Christopher Plummer, Plummer plays a bad guy called uh, Silent Partner, which is coincidentally the name of that graphic novel I just uh, like. Yeah. But different things. Different things. Okay. But there's some horrible violence in that that I ripped off for my Theodad book. And I was really excited to like get to that scene because I, I wanted to pay homage to that uh, movie. That's, well, tell, tell us about Silent Partner. It's, um, I had to admit, I had not read Jonathan Kellerman when they offered me this job, but he's an incredibly popular thriller writer. He's got this series of books starring a psychologist character named Alex Delaware. He started them in, I think the one I wrote came out in 89, and it was the fourth Alex Delaware book. Um, and he's been writing like one a year since then. So he's incredibly prolific. His wife is also a writer. His son is a writer. And Random House was looking for somebody to adapt uh, this fourth Alex Delaware book into a graphic novel. Jonathan, I guess, is, is a big comic book fan and wanted this done. That's um, great. And the editor happened to be a fan of my own graphic novels. So she contacted me about it. And it turned out, it sounded, to be honest, it sounded kind of like an easy paycheck when I got the job. Okay. It, it turned out to be incredibly difficult because it's a 500-page book. We had about 170 pages. And, you know, in a comic, things have to play out in a certain way. You have to have time for the action and the reaction. And because Jonathan himself was going to have final approval over this whole thing, I felt like I couldn't just tear his thing up and start from scratch. On the other hand, it was really hard to fit all the detail in there. So it was a real juggling act. And I was very lucky we got Michael Gatos to draw it. He's fantastic. So it, it looks good. It just came out, I think, about a week ago. Oh, see. Now, I, I'm just thinking that there should have been some fantastic red carpet launch party. Right. <laughs> you know, get everybody involved in the series together. It would be nice. There's very little glamour in comics. It happens very rarely, I'm afraid. Yeah. Isn't it sad? Well, you know, there's no Lone Ranger... Uh, video game, but there is Red Dead Redemption. I don't know. Yeah, I haven't played that yet. I've been meaning to. I think I actually own a copy, but I haven't played it yet. I think I think we should somehow get who who does that one? Rockstar, I think. Rockstar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we should get them to um, you know, have a Lone Ranger arc in there. <laughs> that would be nice. Yeah, it's probably my, my Lone Ranger is probably too tame for them. <laughs> He'd be swell drinking his milk. <laughs> Speaking um, of glamour, now there's not going to be an opening or anything like that to go to, but Jonathan Kellerman said if I'm in L.A., he'll take me to dinner, so I got that to look forward to. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. I know. Our our buddy Dwayne Swarzynski jets off to L.A. all right. the time, you know, yeah. for, for all this. He, he loves when I pick on him, really, I swear. <laughs> um, I've had just little tastes every now and then. I, I get. I was in Hollywood about three years ago for the first time to talk to the guys who created Ciudad with me um, to kind of jam out the outline after it got optioned and I go back every now and then and I talk with my I hate to call him an agent he's not really an agent. he represents my stuff at Oni so yeah visiting him once a year or so is okay that's enough for me <laughs> so what other uh, traveling do you get to do do you hit conventions the comic book circuit at all I do I try to go to Chicago at least once a year this year I think I'm going to go twice I'm going to go to C2E2 and the wizard show in August and 
people like to bash on wizard shows, but I always have a great time at that August convention. And it's because it's so isolated. It's not really in Chicago. It's way out by O'Hare. Okay. Um, and there's not a lot of places to go. The good thing about that is that everybody goes to the same restaurants. Everybody ends up drinking in the same bar that night. So it's an amazing place to just hang out till 3 in the morning with all my buddies that I don't get to see enough. Yeah, Pittsburgh is like that, too. That's really the best part about going to Pittsburgh Comic Con is because of that very same reason. It's outside. I mean, we all would like it to be in the city. Right. But um, but we do know that at least, you know, it's kind of dumb to even say, well, where are you going to be? Like, yeah. it's, it's not where you're going to be. It's, okay, I'll see you in an hour. Right. I did that show once way back when Michael George was still running it and all that. Is it still the same show? Um, I think so. I mean, after all the criminal issues yeah. that went on there, the family took it over. Okay. So um, his wife and, I guess, son, I think, run the show. It's, yeah. it's a great time, and they treat people very well. Yeah, they were very nice to me. So that's yeah, I do remember. Different. I had to get a shuttle early to the airport. I think they hired a, a car for me. But I remember it was quite a trek to the airport, so we were definitely somewhere outside of town. Yeah, because it's Monroeville. Yeah, okay. It's not, you know, it's not downtown. I mean, it'd be nice, but what they do um, for the, the comic book community that's there, because Pittsburgh has a great one, is, um, you know, they do an indie show that's run, um, actually, I'm not sure who's specifically running it, but I know that the people over at the Toonsium are involved in running picks. It's the Pittsburgh Indie Expo or something like that. Right. Um, so Isn't that kind of a trek for you? It is now. Yeah, now I'm back in Jersey. Oh, okay. You lived in? Did you live in the in Pennsylvania for a while? Yeah, I was living in Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. And um, so it was it was nice that the Pittsburgh show itself is just kind of like this big reunion of everybody. Right. You know, because you have the Chicago people and you have the people from the South, and then the East Coast people. It was like one of those things where it's like, okay, it's like you know, six to ten hours for all of us to drive there. Right. So it was like the one location that we knew we'd get to see each other. Because, I mean, New York is kind of pointless to try and actually connect with people. Yeah, it is. It's so it's, spread out. It's impossible. It's, it's just, you know, you might see somebody for five minutes. Right. And then if you end up at the same after party, okay, maybe. But um, yeah. Have you ever been to San Diego? No. It's It's huge. But most people go to the Hyatt to drink, in my experience. So the Hyatt is a really frustrating normal place to try, try to get a drink. So I take a flask and I just sit out in the lobby and, and drink. And drink. See that's, yeah, that's what I've heard from, from several people. Yeah. And, and I guess Dragon Con is pretty much the same way. Yeah, I've never been there. I've, I've been to every San Diego for the last, like, I don't know, 15 years or so, except the last one. I skipped the last one. And then I got really mad at myself because I missed the first uh, what was the thing that Scott Morse put together um, oh Trickster yeah I missed all that and I was kind of pissed about it well it seems like the, the indie comics that we have today the well at least for you know the creator owned stuff I feel I feel awkward calling some things indies when they're by famous people yeah right it's like it might be some off label type of thing it's not a DC or Marvel but it's still by somebody famous yeah. And, um, you know, if it's Grant Morrison, if it's Mark Miller, if it's Jimmy Palmiotti, I mean, they're, they're names. They're, you know, they're big names. So it's, you know, it's a little bit 
awkward saying, well, that's an indie guy when, you know, my poor friends that are indie guys can't even, you know, get a $5,000 Kickstarter successfully, but yet, you know, if you throw somebody like that on it, it's like, bam, (laughs) (laughs) $100,000. I felt stuck in between at San Diego for a while because I was kind of too sell out to walk around the artist alley or the uh, independent alley mm-hmm. and talk to, the, I mean, the people who were making their comics in their basement or whatever were like, oh. Mm-hmm. And like, staple, yeah, stapling them together at the yeah. table, yeah. Like, yeah, this guy works for DC, what the hell, he didn't know. What, but I was, you know, publishing these graphic novels through Oni and not making a great living at it. And I didn't really fit into the superstar DC template either, so I felt kind of stuck. We need to come up with a middle area. Yeah. Middle. It's where most of us live, probably. Yeah. Um, so you have a daughter who's 13. Uh-huh. And how many other kids do you have? A son who's eight, about to be nine. Are they into comics? Um, Hannah is to some extent. She doesn't really read stuff that I write very much. She like, used to like manga a lot. She's not so much. She's more into like anime and animation stuff right now. And she reads a lot of, of books. Henry is way into comics, has tons of stuff in his room, is sweet enough that he'll tell me, Dad, Death of Zora is the best comic I ever read. And, you know, he's, so he reads my stuff and enjoys it a lot. That's good. That's good. What are you looking forward to this year that's comic-related besides, you know, like, are you looking towards a particular, you know, book that you read, or are you looking towards a movie that you're looking forward to? Well, I'm I'm enough of a geek that I can't wait for the next Batman movie. Okay. I love Dark Knight. I'm really excited about that. I'm not too excited about Spider-Man or anything else. I should be, I guess. I'm not much of a Whedon guy, so I'm not sure about Avengers. His, okay. He's he's doing Avengers, right? Yeah. Yeah, I should be excited about that, but I'm not very. Um, I'm kind of. It's not usually the kind of thing I read, but like I said, I know Jason Aaron real well, and. Um, we've been talking for a long time about what he's doing with the Avengers X-Men thing, so that's kind of exciting to me, seeing that come out. And gosh, that's about it in comics, I'm afraid. Like I said, I don't follow a lot of stuff religiously. Are you one of these Walking Dead fans that's, like, watching the show and analyzing it? I, against... re- I read the book, and I watch the show, and I'm kind of a... Both are kind of guilty pleasures for me. I don't think they're... They're not, like, my favorite thing, but I'm kind of hooked on them. I always call Walking Dead, like, the best long-running soap opera that's ever been done in comics. Because, really, it's it's a perfect soap opera, except for the fact that people are getting eaten by zombies. <laughs> um, but that's why you come back to it, because you want to know, is so-and-so going to leave so-and-so or, you know, hook up with so-and-so? And it's, there's a lot of death thrown into the middle of it. But yeah. the, and I watch the show, and I kind of, you know, I sit there going, eh, it's not quite as good as a comic, or that's a little better than the comic, and I'm just kind of hooked on it for no particular reason. Okay. Wasn't sure. Wasn't sure where you were, because I, I only saw, like, the first one or two episodes, and oh, I, don't, I, I don't read the book. It's not my kind of thing. Right. Just, so, I, you know, I didn't get sucked into the vortex. Right. <laughs> it's a very, it, yeah, and it, that's what it is. It's. Like I said, they're both kind of guilty pleasures for me. Kind of like watching that goddamn stupid Entourage show. <laughs> I hated every minute of it, and I couldn't stop watching the goddamn thing. It was terrible. See, I'm I'm very obsessed now with Once Upon a Time. 
Yeah, I've never seen that or the or the other thing in the jig that's like that. Uh, Grim. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In my opinion, I think Once is a much better show. Really? Um, yeah. Uh, it's a clever show. And how does it look? Does it look like they're both going to make it, or what What have you heard about them? Um, I would be shocked if they didn't. Yeah. Especially Once, of, uh, you know, Once is doing so well, I think. The, I, I think at this point, if there was a rumor of a cancellation, I think it would be a marketing ploy. I don't think it would really happen. Um, because Castle was like that too. I'm a huge Castle fan. I and know a lot of people who are, and I've never watched it. And yet, you know, every year there's like this fake threat of it being canceled. Right. And I think they just do that to see how many people on Twitter will reply, "No, please, please save Castle, please save Castle." Right. Um, so at this point, anything that's you know anything that's considered uh, like a leaked image of something, I don't believe right. because I believe it's all marketing. <laughs> and fake cancellations, you know, are quite quite well until the show goes off the air. Right. I mean, I I didn't mention this. I'm very excited about Mad Men coming back. That's my favorite thing on TV. Okay. My wife and I are very excited about that. Okay. And you're dapper. You're dapper that way. So. I yeah. I know. I try to be. Yeah. I do enjoy the hats on that show. I okay. This is embarrassing, but here's how much a hat geek I am. You get the Blu-rays. And every now and then, a character will turn his hat so you can see the interior, the lining. Mm-hmm. Well, I freeze frame them, freeze frame those so I can tell if they're vintage or if they're not, or if they're costume pieces. Yeah, right. That's that's pretty out there. That's, <laughs> that's, that's thorough. That's very thorough. <laughs> and I get very disgusted, by the way, about about how John Hamm wears his hats. Are you this thorough with porn? Do you zoom in to see if things are real or fake? No, I don't care about that. No. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, there's hats and then there's sex. <laughs> um, the ham wears his hat all smushed down, like right on his eyebrows, and it it, it drives me crazy. I, I want five minutes on the set to say, dude, you're a good-looking guy. Don't smush your hat down like that. <laughs> What's his name? John Slattery wears his a lot better, I think. Yeah, they've done. They, I think uh, the world of, of costuming, uh, as far as the theater on Broadway and television shows, I think is this last year or two has just like really jumped leaps and bounds from what we used to have in the nineties. It's amazing that you know for a while we have satellite TV and I could not get AMC in HD. And I would watch Mad Men and go, yeah, it looks it looks good. But getting the Blu-rays is a whole different animal. You can really see the attention they put into all the props and everything. It's really, it's pretty amazing. I still have one of those TVs that's so, like, wide in the back that I need, um, you know, it's on my dresser. Right. And it's, like, got to be so far away from the wall because it's... It weighs it, 200 pounds, probably. It does, Yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's like I'm not I'm not hitting the Blu-ray thing anytime soon. Right. <laughs> they need to just stop inventing shit. I love it. I'm just a little bit of an of a gadget geek, so yeah, I don't have full surround and all that stuff, but I gotta have the HD TV and the Blu-ray. You know, I finally have a phone that gets on the internet. So nice. <laughs> it's like that was that was something new in the last couple of years. Nice. <laughs> I was gonna mention another thing about Mad Men. If you're a writer and you've never heard. Matthew Weiner's commentaries on the Mad Men DVDs or Blu-rays, mm-hmm. 
you really should check them out because he's amazing. Okay. He'll walk you through. If he comments on an episode, you need to hear it because he talks about what they were trying to do thematically and um, how each scene is driven by those goals. It's really educational. Well, I loved your, you know, your comic book commentary, which, like you said, is a strange thing to do, perhaps, because it's... But, you know, when they do those giant absolute editions and things, I, I think that's expected. Right. So, you know, I look forward to it and hope you give the feedback to Joe that, you know, readers would certainly like to see more of that. Yeah, good. I'd like to do it more. It's fun. And, you know, it took a little time that I probably couldn't afford on a deadline, but it... It's not only kind of fun to go back through the work and kind of get lost in it for a while. It also it helps drive you forward, I think, to just to get reinvested on where you've been. Um, it, it can help remind you of themes that maybe you were going to get to and you forgot about. And it's good to revisit this stuff a little bit. Great. Well, uh, we'll wrap up by uh, hearing some of your official places to find you and stalk you. Um, yeah. And where can people learn about you and stuff? Probably, it's kind of pathetic. My website is hopelessly outdated, and I need to redo it. But there is an andyparks.com. you got to spell A-N-D-E. Um, I'm on Twitter as Andy Parks. And there's a... I just kind of split Facebook, so there's a like page and there's a friend page. Okay. So you, can, you can like me and get career updates and stuff on Facebook as well. Okay. That's good. And then, of course, two Chicago shows, so people can go meet you in person. Yeah, I'll be at C2E2. I'll be... Um, just, what is it, like a week and a half away now. I'll be at yeah. Plant Comic Con in Kansas City. And I'll be in San Diego for sure. Do you do anything for Free Comic Book Day? Not usually. I, okay, here's what I do. I go to my store where a lot of my friends go, and I hang out with them a little bit, and then we go get drunk afterwards. Well, that's, that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah. I don't really do a signing or anything, because everybody knows me there, and it feels kind of silly. But, okay. yeah, I go and I hang out with buddies. Kansas City's really lucky. We've got a, a pretty amazing community of comic book people. Jason Aaron lives here. Dennis Hopeless, Kevin Mellon, uh, my buddy Jai Nitz, who writes a lot of stuff for Dynamite, and countless people I'm sure I'm forgetting right now. But we have a really nice little group of people that can get together. Okay, well, here's what I want somebody to do. I want somebody who's going off to C2E2 or Wizard World Chicago because they can't be there unless they win the lottery. To, um, are you going to have a table or oh, a panel? Yeah. Well, table panel, we don't know. Yes, one or the other, yeah. Okay. Okay, I want somebody out there to find Mr. Andy Parks and throw him a pair of sexy ladies underwear and say that it's from me. Nice. Can, I want this to happen. Excellent. And I and will it, offer that person a shot because I'd never do a convention without a flask on me. That's fantastic. So there is a reward if I get panties. Yes, I love them. It dicey when I said that. <laughs> <laughs> and then we will someday meet in person. I because, hope so. Like I said, Dynamite is, you know, practically in my backyard a couple hours away, so I think um, I think there needs to just be a, a summit of, you know, creators there. I agree. I think you and I would have a lot of fun hitting the bars. Okay, we definitely would. We'll do, we should do Philly. That'd be great. Yeah. Alright, well, thanks for your time and everything. Thanks everybody for listening and if you have any follow-up questions I can always try to forward them for you or you know you can go to the Facebook and ask away there as well. Um, this is Amber from Amber and Best if you somehow forgot who you were listening to. And um, again check out Lone Ranger and Green Hornet and all this great stuff that Andy's been uh, coming up with. <laughs>